And as you find your seats, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles this morning, uh, as we continue our sermon series on David, uh, this man with a heart for God, we are going to be in 2 Samuel 12 this morning, uh, if you want to turn with me there. But one of the things we know living life, it's always dangerous to put somebody you admire, somebody you love on a pedestal. Uh, it's always dangerous to have somebody on a pedestal that you look up to. Why? Because we know that everybody is susceptible to a fall. Uh, even our heroes uh, are weak and often stumble. And the higher you put somebody on a pedestal, uh, really the more painful it really is when they do fall. Uh, and sadly, some people in society love it when people on pedestals fall. But if anybody ever deserved to be put on a pedestal, and a high pedestal, it was King David. I mean, King David, what an amazing man. Uh, this shepherd boy who would take on Goliath, a giant warrior of a man, he'd take him on with just five smooth stones. But David was so good, he just needed one. I mean, it was David who was a warrior that they would sing about, this warrior who had killed his tens of thousands. I mean, what an incredible warrior uh, this man was. It was David who would write poetry. Uh, he would write songs, uh, who could play musical instruments. Most of his poetry, or much of his poetry, found its way into God's Word, inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Read through the Psalms and see how many of them are attributed to David. Wow, it's absolutely amazing. We've looked at the fact that it's David, what a loyal friend. Uh, he had a friend named Jonathan, who many ways could have been a rival to him. Uh, Jonathan was the son of the king at the time named Saul, and yet David, an amazingly loyal friend, uh, whose word was his word, he would stick uh, like a closer than a brother. We see David, who was a merciful king, uh, who would, we, as we looked at Mephibosheth, remember that story? Uh, this man who was, who was lame from his feet, that David would say in showing kindness to a friend, Mephibosheth, you always have a place at my table. I will always provide for you. David was the, the first and the truest Renaissance man there ever was. And I, I think about that, it's kind of funny. David was long before the Renaissance, right? But if there was ever a Renaissance man, what is a Renaissance man? It's somebody, according to Wikipedia, uh, it's a Renaissance man is somebody who has an amazing amount of skill Cognitively, they're very smart. Physically, they're very strong. Uh, emotionally, socially, there's somebody you look at and sometimes you think, oh man, they got everything. I mean, a Renaissance man isn't just good in certain areas. They were good in all areas, seemingly. And this is David. I mean, look at an area and you don't want to say, is this a skilled man? And of all of his traits, of all of his qualities, the one that is the most beautiful was his heart. It says that David had a heart for God. Wow, if there was anybody who should be put on a pedestal, it was David. But in that precarious position on pedestals, the mighty are prone to fall. We looked at that last week. If you were here, if you missed any of these sermons, let me encourage you. You can get them on our website. You get them on uh, our podcast or on our uh, uh, what do you call that, on Apple and Spotify. Lots of ways to get them and listen to them. But here you had David, and the mighty certainly fell. And wow, did David fall. You have a godly king. And yet, at a time where kings were going off to war, what was our godly king doing? 
this godly king became a peeping Tom. I mean, he was hanging out on his roof. Instead of doing what he should be doing, he's looking out and he sees a beautiful naked woman taking a bath, not his own, uh, another man's wife uh, named Uriah. This peeping Tom would become an adulterer. Uh, it's worse than that. He would try to cover his own steps. Uh, he would try one way or another to make sure that he can get away, for, away with this. It wouldn't work. So eventually it led to murder, a murder of one of his mighty men, one of the men that was under his care. Uh, he became uh, a murderer, an adulterer. Oh, how the mighty has fallen. And it says at the end of the story, this story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, as we looked at last week in chapter 11, the last verse of chapter 11 says this, what David did displeased the Lord. Yeah, you would think so, right? I mean, he's holy God. I mean, he's holy God, and this is God's anointed king. I mean, this is the one that supposedly has a heart after God. And look what he did. Look at the fruit of his sin. I mean, it went from lust to, to adultery to, to murder. Wow, it displeased the Lord. And when the mighty falls, when the king is the one who sins, who has the guts to go point out the sins of the king, right? I mean, whose task is it to go say to the king, oh, by the way, it's you. Who tells the king that he has no clothes, right? It's a dangerous job to go tell the king, you're the man. It's a dangerous job to go tell the king, you're the one, by the way, who has no clothes. But God will send a prophet, and a prophet is one who speaks for God. It's an empowered for God. This prophet's name is Nathan, and he is going to tell David, hey, you are the man. You are the sinner. You are the man who would commit such egregious sins in God's sight. And I love the way Nathan did it. He does it strategically. There's ways that you could tell people about their sin. We know, according to Scripture, we should speak truth in love, right? Speak truth in love. If we care for somebody who is committing sin, Scripture exhorts us as brothers and sisters to go to them. Matthew 18 is going to tell us specifically, if they don't listen, to take somebody else. If they don't listen to two, bring them to the church. God wants us to deal with sin. He wants us to deal with what, in a way that's truth and love to one another. So here God's going to send Nathan the prophet, but he's going to do it in such a great way. Nathan is so smart, he's not going to walk in and say, Hey, King David, hey man, let me just tell you something. You thought you did it in secret, but everybody knows. I know it, man. You committed adultery. You committed murder. Come on, David, let's go, man. Start confessing. No, Nathan was a little wiser than that. He told him a parable. He told him a little story. He told the story we're about ready to read, and, and I love it. It worked because at the end of the story, King David says, that man deserves to die. That man deserves to pay back four times what he did. Uh, and Nathan's going to say, <clears throat> good call. You are the man. You are guilty. You are guilty of sin. So let's unpack this incredible story, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, we will be reading verses 1 through 25. Remember, wherever we find ourselves in God's Word, whether we're in the Old Testament, in the New, this is God's holy and errant Word. We can trust it. It'll never lead us astray. In the original, without errors. And it's God's Word. May God speak to us, His people. Hear the Word of the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, 
There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. I mean, this is somebody, you know, so those dog lovers who, like, feed their dog at the table, those dog lovers who let them in and they can go about anywhere they want, who, who, who does that? Okay? But here's somebody who's got a little ewe lamb who said, hey, I'll let him drink from my cup. I'll let him eat from my hand. I'm going to hold him in my arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan cleared his voice. <clears throat> Doesn't say that, but I think he did. And said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, the previous king. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. That's all of God's people. And if, there were, if this were too little, I would add to you as, and much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do that which is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Oh, it may not have been in your hand, but it was your sword that you used, as if it was in your hand. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me of taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. We're going to look at this next week. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you, the child conceived in adultery to Bathsheba, is going to die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and laid all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do, something, he, he may do himself some harm. 
But when David saw his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself, and he changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, Why is this thing, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. Verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah. The Lord loved him, it means, because of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, what an amazing story. I just thank you so much that your word tells us the truth about those that have gone before us. And God, here we have, we want to put David on a pedestal, but you show us the truth of who David is. He's a sinner like us who needs a Savior like Jesus. Oh God, we pray that you would come and that you would be pleased to to speak through a sinner like me. That God, that you would give us ears to hear your voice in the midst of this story. That God, you would give us minds that would understand your word and what this means for our lives. That you would give us hearts, God, that, that are not cold and stony because of sin, but God, by your grace, you'd give us hearts of flesh that would embrace your truth. And God, that you would give us feet to walk in a manner worthy of your name. That God, that you would give us the gift of repentance. Repentance that leads unto life. That God, that each of us would find our rightful place in this story. And that we would see Jesus as beautiful. Oh God, the things that I say that are wrong are merely my opinion. May those things be forgotten and fall away. But the things that are true and contain the good news of the gospel... Would you use those things to make us more like our Savior, your Son, Jesus? And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. For a few things we're going to look at today, and usually I, I tell you these before I read, and I realize I didn't, but we're going to look at, in this passage, confronting David's sin. We're going to look at the cause of David's sin. We're going to look at the consequences of David's sin. Confession of David's sin, the character of a repenting king, and the continuation of God's blessing to David. But it starts off with a confrontation. Somebody's got to go tell the king, hey, guess what? You got no clothes. Guess what, King David? You messed up. I know you got a, I know you got a heart uh, after God, but boy, did you fall. David's sinful actions, did they displease the Lord? I mean, this was the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen, yet it was the Lord. Now, I, gotta start. I love how this starts. It was the Lord who sent Nathan to confront David, to lead him to repentance. It was the Lord who initiates this. 
It's with the Lord's initiation. Don't miss this. David messed up. David sinned. David did what was displeasing to the Lord. But you want to know how gracious our God is? God's going to send a prophet. He's going to send one. He's going to initiate the entire process. Go and tell David. Why? Because scripture teaches us that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to his Lord. It's his initiative. It initiates with the Lord. For God so loved sinners that he would send his only son to rescue us. Salvation is not only God's initiative, it's God's execution. God is the one who sent his son to live a life that we failed to live. To die a death that we deserve to die. To be resurrected. So salvation is his initiative. It's his execution. Now watch this. It's his application too. It's the Holy Spirit that's come to you and is giving you the eyes to see and the ears to hear. If you love Jesus, if you've confessed your sins, if you've embraced him as your Lord and Savior, it's by God's grace and initiation, initiative. It's by his grace. Why do we believe and the others don't? God has been so gracious to us. So God, this God who's holy and just, who's displeased with David, wants to make things right. So he initiates with David. He sends the prophet. And he sends a prophet with the authority of the Lord. Come, go in the name of the Lord. Go speak as if you're speaking from me. Nathan was going to go tell the king, by the way, you got no clues. Na uh, David, you are naked before the Lord. Your sin is so exposed. He knows. He knows what you've done. And he's angry. But there's some hope. You know, I love the story he tells. It's a story of great contrast of a rich man and a poor man. And everybody should get the story. He said the rich man, he had flocks, he had herds. I mean, there were so many, you couldn't count them. So you have one who's so rich, you have one who's so poor, he's got one little ewe lamb. And guess what? He paid for it himself, it says, right? But he didn't use it for food. He used it as like a family pet. It was, it was like a daughter to him. I mean, it was weird how close this, this little ewe was to him that he would eat out of his hand, drink out of his cup, held in his arms like a daughter to him. What an incredible difference. He treated this one like family. Wow, what, what a great story to show David what he had done. The second thing we're going to see is David's judgment against him in verse 5. Da David brings judgment on himself. He hears the story, right? And what does he say? As the Lord lives. I love this. You know, David's, here's David. He hasn't repented of his sin yet. As the Lord lives. I mean, he's going to throw out that religious talk. As God lives, this is what should be done, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is terrible what happened. By the way, it's a parable. It's a story. But David was so drawn in. He was so angry. As the Lord lives, he's bringing God's authority into this situation. And he pronounces judgment. He goes, this man deserves to die. Now let's hit pause. He deserves to die because he took someone else's little ewe lamb? I mean, I understand what he did was egregious. I mean, how thoughtless. He did show no pity. But he deserves to die? You know who deserves to die is the one who took Uriah the Hittite's wife. The one who killed Uriah the Hittite. I mean, if there's, you know, the Bible says if you kill the image of God, that's what deserves death, not a lamb. The David, being so angry, says, hey, this one deserves to die. If you read closely through the law in the Old Testament, you'll find out if you've done someone wrong, the right way to repay them is a fourfold restitution. You, you mess up somebody's lamb, you got to give them four. You got to make up for it. Uh, that's in God's law in the Old Testament. 
And so there should be a fourfold restitution. And let me tell you something scary about this story comes true. David's going to make a fourfold restitution. And he's going to lose a lot because of this. No pity. David showed no pity. I mean, he's going to say in this story, this rich man showed no pity. But the one who didn't show any pity was David. I mean, he, he slept with Uriah the Hittite's wife, and then, and then he brings him from the battlefield, and, and then he tries to get him to go stay with his wife, and she, he, he's too noble, and so he gets him drunk, and he's still too noble. So he, he writes a letter to the commander Joab and says, hey, put this guy in the front of the line and, and withdraw from him, and so he's killed. Talk about no pity. Talk about no feel. Talk about what sin can do. How blinding. How sad. That's David. And isn't it interesting that David will bring judgment on himself? So what's the cause of David's sin? Verses 7b through 9. I mean, really, uh, you're going to see uh, the cause is going to be his heart. It's his heart issue. I mean, that's the reality. Some might say, well, well David's problem starts off with a wandering eye. It's a lustful eye. Well, yeah, that's, that's a part of it. But here's the bottom line. The issue with David is the issue of the heart. The issue with us is always the issue of the heart. Sin starts here. It starts with a, with, a, with a sinful, broken heart. And so isn't it interesting that one that Scripture will say has a heart after God still has a sinful heart? And oh, what a sinful heart he had. He's despising the word of the Lord. It says this, he despised the word of the Lord. Listen, how did he do that? Well, you see, David knew God's law. Hello, this is King David. Scripture is going to say any, any king of Israel, they have to read God's law. They have to write down God's law. He knew God's commandments. He knew. He knew that he should not covet his neighbor's wife. It's one of the top ten. He knew. But there's more than that. He knew that you shouldn't commit adultery. It's another one of the top ten. And he knew. And he knew, and another one of the top ten is that you should not murder. He knew. He knew that he shouldn't put anything above God. He did. His lust. He knew he shouldn't make an idol. He did. His, his sexual drive. Uh, he knew that he shouldn't profane the name of God. He did. You want to start checking off the top ten? He broke them all. He broke them all. He acted as if he despised God's law. He knew. He knew better, but he despised God's word. Why? Because his desires were more important. Isn't it true with us? I mean, seriously, when you, when you, when you slip into a pornography and you're looking at things you shouldn't, I mean, you, you, know, you know what God has said. You know, when, when you tell a, a lie to try to make yourself look better, you, you know what God has said. And when you're coveting your neighbor's stuff and deep down you're kind of disappointed that God didn't give you what he gave to them, you, you, you know. So what we're doing is we're putting ourselves as our needs. Like, well, God said this, but you know what? I feel and I want this. And so here you have David despising the word of the Lord. But he does more. He despises the authority of the Lord. David is acting as if he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, David is forgetting that he has a king over him, right? Oh, who's that woman over there? Wow, she's beautiful. Bathsheba, bring her to me. Now, wait a minute, David. It's, it's so-and-so's daughter, and it's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Wait a minute. Red light's here, David. Nope, go get her. I want her. 
I mean, he's blowing through red lights, despising the Lord's authority. The Lord is the one who anointed him. And David's acting like he's king. Now, now listen, isn't that true of us? Every time we sin, every time we wander, we act as if we're on the throne. We act as if it's, if it's our needs, our, our desires are more important than a holy God's desires or needs before his eyes. David is doing wrong, doing what is evil in the Lord's sight. David's sinful heart, even with a heart after God, was still prone to wander, was still prone for evil. Uh, David's going to say in Psalm 51, listen, I was conceived in sin. I was born a sinner. And we got to realize what David did was wrong against Bathsheba, against Uriah, of course. But sin is evil in God's eyes. And, and I think we fail to realize that. We see God as merciful. We see God as kind, and he is. We see God as forgiving, and he does. But we got to realize that sin, is, if God is holy, and he is, God, God's word says his eyes are too pure to look at sin. He says that he hates it. It burns against him. It's, it's an evil. And for God to be God, he, of course, sin is an evil in God's eyes. And then there's going to be consequences of David's sin. And boy, are there consequences. God's word is going to say through Nathan, listen, the sword will never depart from your house. And the sword won't depart from his house. We only have two more weeks of David. I wish I had ten. Because if you start seeing what happens, guess what happens? The sword will never leave David's house. The sins of the father are immediately going to bear fruit. And it's ugly. I mean, it's really ugly. Evil against you from your own house. Oh my goodness, did evil come from David's house. The sins of the father would be repeated. The sexual sins of the father would become more and more perverse. His son Amnon is going to rape his sister Tamar. His son Absalom is going to rebel, and we're going to read that story. And he's going to be one who sleeps with his father's concubines out in the open for everybody sees it. His son Abnon. He's going to be killed in the temple. That fourfold, it's going to pay. Oh, my goodness. Your wives, it says, will be given to your neighbor. It's even worse. Your son, your wives, your son's going to violate. In the light of day, in the sight of all, guess what they're going to do? They're going to clear out a tent and say, okay, Absalom, go have, go have your King David's harem so everybody knows that you're the king. I mean, wow, has evil borne fruit? Have the sins of the father come around? And will there be a payment? It's incredible. The consequences of sin. Now, it's true of every sin has consequences. Some we feel like we get away with, but if, if it's evil in the God's eyes, it's going to have consequences. Always. But then there's a confession of sin. Verse 13, David is going to come to his senses and says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now hit pause and say, well, wait a minute. I've sinned against the Lord? Who did David sin against? Bathsheba? Uriah the Hittite? And yet David is going to say, I have sinned against the Lord? Well, listen to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 says this. And again, if you read before verse 1, it's important. That's in the original. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Wow. Wow. This is going to tell us. You want to know when this psalm was written? You want to know what this is all about? It's all about exactly where we're looking at. This psalm is going to be his response 
So listen to what it says in Psalm 51. David cries out and says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, that, that Hebrew word hesed, that, that loving kindness, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin, it's ever before me. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Why does he say that? He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. And yet he realized his sin, first and foremost, was against a holy God that made him. And he realized, that's the one I offended. That's the one that I sinned against first. I sinned against the God who is. And yes, that sin bore fruit in many other ways. And yes, he did wrong to many others, but he realized that we need to realize as well, sin is first and foremost an offense to a holy God. And we need to repent and ask for forgiveness and done what is evil in his sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David saying, listen, I've been a sinner since the moment I was conceived. And behold, you delight in the inward uh, uh, truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And he says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right and a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will delight, do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here's what he's saying. God, I'm brokenhearted over my sin. Please, God, don't take your Holy Spirit. God, whatever you could do, cleanse me. Please cleanse me. Restore to me joy, the joy that my sin robbed, the joy of your salvation. Oh, God, forgive me. Have mercy upon me. And Nathan says something amazing to David. David confesses, and Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. How does the Lord put away your sin? Does God just say, okay, it's not a big deal. You killed Uriah the Hittite. You had adultery. No, I'm going to put it away. You know how he put it away? There had to be a sacrifice. And in his day, there was a day of atonement. One day a year, a priest went into the Holy Holies, and he went in with blood. And he went in with blood for a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of God's people. But you know that day of atonement? The blood of animals doesn't take away our sins. It only points to the only sacrifice at will. How did God put away David's sins the same way he put away your sin and mine? Through the cross of Christ Jesus. There's no other way that our sins could be taken away. Do you know that? There's no other way. Holy God would say. He says, you shall not die. But I'll tell you something. Something will die. And something did die because of that sin of David. In his day, it was a spotless lamb. It was a spotless lamb of sacrifice on things like the Day of Atonement. But all those is the true spotless lamb of God. His name is Jesus. And the only way that we won't die is because that lamb did die. It's interesting. Something or something would die 
and that ultimately would be Jesus. Now listen, as I close, I want to show you something very important in the New Testament. And it's the difference between repenting and feeling repenting of our sins and regretting our sins. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10 this. Listen to these words. Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you would suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a difference between regret and repentance. Regret is being upset that you were caught. Regret is being upset because you got to bear the consequences of your sin. Regret is about you. Regret is about your feelings. Repentance is about God. It's coming to God. David knew that he sinned against a holy God. He pleaded with God to cleanse him. He pleaded to God to restore him. Luke would write in the book of Acts about the salvation of the gospel going out in Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, the gospel, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Have you been granted repentance that leads to life? Have you run to God or away from God? And when you see that David, he runs to God. He, when he finds out, his, he's, been, uh, he's told about this child who will die. What does he do? And again, he cries out to God. He fasts. He prays. He trusts in God's mercy. He trusts in God's will and salvation. I love this story. Don't have time to unpack it. But at the very end, what does David do? Somebody who knows God, even if you're a huge sinner, you still run to him. You don't run away from him. If you've messed up in life and you're running away from God, do you really know him? Do you know how merciful and kind he is? David was told that the child's going to not survive. But what does David do? He begs with God. Seven days he fasts. Seven days he prays. And all the elders are terrified when the child dies. What are we going to tell him? Because he's gone. Look at the way he acted when he was alive. He's, he's going to harm himself. And David does something weird. When he hears that the child has died, he worships. What? Because he trusts in God's sovereignty and he trusted in God's promises. And he says something amazingly beautiful. The child can't come back, but I'll go to him. That's somebody who knew that our God was the God over life and death. As a pastor... As I've talked to parents who've lost their children, either through miscarriage or, or, or a young child, I always run to this verse, knowing the hope. The scripture says that if you're a believer, believer, the child is considered holy. We don't have to baptize them to be holy. You know, it's, it's the hope we have in a merciful God. And God says, I'm going to continue to bless you, David. It's the first time that Bathsheba's name is called Bathsheba. He's only been referred to as Uriah the Hittite. But God is going to say, I mean, David, confront, comfort your wife Bathsheba. First time that he's considered his wife. Interesting. And have a son. His name is Solomon. Guess what that means? Peace. Peace with God. 
And let me tell you about that son. I love him. And let me tell you about the promises I've made to you. They're still true. A king is coming from you, from you and his name is Jesus. The only one who will never fail and fall from the pedestal is Jesus. And is it interesting? They put him on the pedestal of the cross and they pierced him for our transgressions. We deserve to die, Scripture says, but Jesus died in our place. We could only be forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, God's only Son. God's only Son, like that little you, that beloved one, sacrificed for us. The King, Jesus, he has no clothes. Our King was stripped naked and hung on a cross to cover our sin and our shame so that we could be forgiven and given life. Jesus, our only hope. Amen, and let's pray. Now, Father God, we thank you for this amazing story of David. God, we thank you for the courage that Nathan would have to go and tell him, hey man, you're, you're a sinner and you need to repent. God, we thank you for the gift of repentance that you gave to David. True repentance that led to life. And God, I pray for anyone in this church or anyone watching who maybe has regretted their sin but never repented of their sin. God, may today be the day where they would realize that the sin that they've done, first and foremost, is against you, the holy God. And because of who you are, you're going to pay for each sin. We'll either pay for it or Jesus will. And God, we thank you that that beloved you lamb of yours, Jesus, the lamb of God, you would give him freely to us to be sacrificed, that through his wounds that we could be healed, that we could be forgiven. God, there's no other way for us to find shalom, peace with you, apart from your son. There's no other way except through a sacrifice. And God, we thank you for the ultimate pedestal, the pedestal of the cross. And we thank you for the King of kings and the Lord of lords who would hang naked on a tree so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Oh, what a beautiful Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.